Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Metcast, the official podcast of Manchester Metropolitan University. In each episode, we bring you interviews, insights and inspiration from students, staff, alumni and the wider world, and share some of the great stories we've discovered from across the university. In this very special episode, we're delighted to bring you an interview with the author and creative writing lecturer, Monique Roffey, hot on the heels of her success at the Costa Book Awards. Roffey's novel, The Mermaid of Black Conch, was named Costa Book of the Year for 2020, one of the most prestigious awards in British literature. Her novel, a dark love story between a fisherman and a mermaid torn from the sea, was described by judges as a classic in the making from a writer at the height of her powers. Here, Monique tells us what it means to have won the Costa Prize, the inspiration for The Mermaid, and her advice to her creative writing students to write the book that only you can write. And yeah, firstly, well, congratulations on your Costa Book of the Year award. Um, an obvious place to start is just to ask you how it feels to have won. Um, well, thank you. Um, it's been... Well, I've used the word flabbergasted, but I have been incredibly um, surprised and honoured and, well, elated. You know, it's, 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 I've been writing for 20 years. So, I mean, I, you know, I never in a million years saw it coming. I never saw this coming and who, who can. But it's a huge breakthrough as well into um, a more mainstream readership for me. So I'm, you know, I'm beyond thrilled. It's, it's, it's a great thing. And, and for people listening who might not know what the Costa Book of the Year is or how significant it is, could you explain a little bit about what this kind of recognition means for you personally as, as a writer, but also hopefully for, for the novel itself? Well, the Costa um, have been publishing the best in contemporary fiction, poetry, biography and young adult books for a very long time. Previously, this award was given out by Whitbread. So between Whitbread and Costa, and they're sort of household names, aren't they? Um, I think it was a brewery and now, um, you know, household name Costa Coffee. Um, They have just um, managed to produce a canon of contemporary books um, across five categories that have been, you know, enduring. And they brought great fiction, um, great literature generally to the general public to a wide audience of readers and I sort of feel like I'm part of a lineage now um, of books you know luminary writers like Jonathan Coe and um, Andrew Miller and Sally Rooney and A.L. Kennedy you know really big writers have won this prize so it's 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 a huge breakthrough. I, I know as well that it's been published by People Tree. Press, which is a kind of quite small independent publisher. So, um, what does it? What does an award like this mean for a, a publishing house like that as well? Um, well, it's a huge breakthrough for them as well, and a challenge to meet the demand. But People Tree, which are based in Leeds, have been publishing the best in Black British and Caribbean uh, literature for like four decades now. They are, in a way, legendary. They're a powerhouse of, um, like I said, Caribbean and Black British fiction, poet and poetry and nonfiction. So in a way, um, it's a huge boost for them. And I hope they reap rewards as well. And maybe even this 
will lead to some kind of expansion or, you know, fortune for them. But I think together it was just like, um, you know, a magic partnership, you know, me and them and what I brought as well um, in terms of um, my crowdfunding for a publicist. It was just like a perfect storm, this, this uh, our, our alliance or, you know, being me, this book being published by them is part of the fortune of the book. Yeah, great. And and obviously this, this year is unlike any other in terms of, you know, I would expect normally the, the Costa ceremony would be, you know, a big event in person and there'd be a big party afterwards. And obviously this year has been very different. But I wondered if you could talk us through what the actual experience of both kind of being shortlisted and then winning in your category and then winning the overall award has been when you've kind of been confined to, to celebrating in your own living room oh, how yeah. hard has that been it's been very very surreal and when I look back on this time in years to come uh, it will be so memorable I think if we didn't have this pandemic it would have been a memorable time I would have gone to a party I'd gone to more than one party probably and got quite pissed to be honest and it would have all been drunken and merry you know we'd all you know you would we'd have your mates around and we'd be out out celebrating but I think it's going it's going to be even more memorable because of what's going on around us we've just passed a hundred thousand people dead from this thing I've just been vaccinated on Wednesday I've been clinically extremely vulnerable so um, I know people who've lost friends and family um, I know lots of people who've had COVID and say it's been awful. I know someone who's got long COVID and it's ruined her life, you know, she can't work. So it's really part of the mixture and the chemistry of winning this prize. Um, Initially, we were delighted to be shortlisted and then utterly incredulous that I'd won my category. And so had Ingrid Perseau, who is another Trinidadian, she'd won her category. So instantly Trinidad put on a nice big Zoom, Zoom party for us. And um, but winning the overall prize is just it's like somebody's hit me over the head with a baseball bat. And then but, you know, the baseball bat of love. And um, and tonight I'm having another big Zoom celebration with lots of friends. And is it in terms of you know the pandemic as well? Obviously, one thing which is a constant, which we can all carry on doing, of course, is reading. And obviously there's been a, an increase in the sales of books. And I, I would suspect particularly fiction and literature that can take us away to worlds completely beyond the, the small ones that we're all living in at the moment and how how much have you kind of you know cognizant of that fact that actually not only are you winning the award in strange circumstances but you've brought out this book in in this world which you wouldn't have expected but actually is reaching readers at a point when they are very receptive to, to sticking down in them yes and, and you know a new world <laughs> I've been I've reached readers when they're more or less locked in and forced to read. Um, we've just seen this new statistic, I think, this week about how book sales, are, uh, bookshops and are recording record sales. So, yeah, I in a way, it's all been a kind of bittersweet. It's great that bookshops are recording record sales, but it's not good. Um, why? You know, the reason why is because we are forced inside. We've been selling like thousands of ebooks, um, which again talks of um, the pandemic 
people reading on, you know, reading on pallets or reading on their phones. I'm not sure we would have had such sales of electronic copies if it hadn't been for the pandemic. So, yeah, I mean, and Trinidad, the, Trinidad, the book is um, set on an imaginary island a long, long, long way away from where we are here. So I hope it is um, a fantasy escape. I, th I think I've seen on Amazon that it's now trending high in the sort of fantasy romance charts on Amazon, yeah. And, and, and that brings us on quite neatly to, to the book itself. So um, The Mermaid of Black Conch, which, which won the award, is, um, was described by the chair of judges, uh, Susanna Lipscomb, as a, an extraordinary, beautifully written, captivating, visceral book. Um, and I know it's a, it's a dark love story between a, a fisherman and a, a mermaid torn from the sea. Um, well, firstly, how does it feel to have your book kind of described in that way? But also, could you tell us, in your own words, about the book, how you describe it and kind of what inspired the story as well? Well, it was inspired initially just by my own private dreaming, you know, my own thinking about mermaids and living by the sea and being around fishing competitions. And so it's been, it was, it was floating around in my consciousness for a while, this whole idea of a mermaid being pulled out of the sea. And then I stumbled across a legend, the Taino legend of Aikaia. And then these two things just melded together. I suddenly had the structure of an old story. And of course, the old story is thousands of years old during a time of patriarchy. And many, many old stories need a good feminist update. They need a good rewrite, which is what I did, what I committed to. And from that point on, all my characters started coming to me and, and also the form and the point of view, which are big decisions to make for every writer. So, you know, over time, you know, I did a lot of work before I wrote a word. And I, I love what people are saying about it, especially I love what the Costa are saying about it, that it might become a classic. It's interesting that about, um, you know, the, the lineage of this kind of being a centuries old myth. And I wonder, obviously, you know, you, you say it kind of came, literally came to you in your dreams, but I wonder if you've thought about why you felt like this was a story that needed updating and bringing to new audiences now. Is there something about the kind of time we're in or, or something that's happened over the last few years that has made you think that this is a, a story that also speaks to the time we're living in at the moment? I, I wish I could say that I was that that um, clever and that I had those, you know, I don't think I've ever thought like that in terms of what I write. I think if I did think like that, I might've been much more successful sooner. I definitely never thought to myself, what do people need? Oh, they need a mermaid. Never thought, um, what do I need to do politically or what do I need to do? Um, it really just appeared out of my unconscious and my own desire to uh, work creatively. So I, I never, I, and I also sort of quite consciously always never think about the reader because I think then that puts you in a position of trying to please, trying to please a reader, trying to second guess a reader or trying to please and second guess a publisher or the publishing industry. I don't necessarily think that's the right way round. I hate to say it, but um, art just needs to be itself. Books need to be themselves, and then and they're written by human beings, 
and then that's a really good way you know that's a, that, okay so if i'm human i'm like this others might like it as well and i, I know you know when you when you won the prize you said it was a, a vote for so many things um, yeah Caribbean literature experimental form independent practice, mm. which we've touched on and of course mermaids and i wonder if we mm. touch on a, on a on a couple of those in a little bit more depth i suppose Firstly, the, the mermaid, and I know you know in the title and essential character of the book, and it's been um, discussed quite widely since your win. And I suppose, um, you know, to, to a lot of people, their only exposure to the idea of the mermaid is the is the Disney film. But of course, that is based on a on a, uh, a story which is you know altogether a lot darker than the film. But I wondered if you could explain the kind of significance of the mermaid and why. A mermaid is the central character of the book. Well, again, it, it wasn't um, a conscious sort of, oh, I must do this because this is what this is going to be. But I, but unraveling it and looking back, she is a kind of quintessential outsider, and exiled and other and cursed, and you know mixed race, sexually ambiguous, sexually fluid. There are so many things bound up in the iconic kind of symbol of the mermaid she just represents everything that's other and I think because of that she does a lot of work for me I don't have to explain anything to people I don't have to go well a mermaid is this and this is what's happened I mean it's all part of a story um, as all mermaids are cursed um, to be half this half that so I think mermaids now I look back and go mm, yeah right she is Everybody gets the fact that she's stuck. And so I've already got readers on my side. I mean, if she had legs, she'd just be like us. There's nothing, she wouldn't be stuck. So, you know, that gives me something to work with. You mentioned earlier that um, Ingrid Basode was also the winner in, in her category. And obviously you said that it's a, a vote for mm -hmm. Caribbean literature as much as anything else. And as a writer from Trinidad, and I know you've set... Um, some of your previous novels in the Caribbean as well. How significant is that? And, and you know, are we in a kind of moment, do you think, for Caribbean writers who are being celebrated at the moment? Well, Marlon James won the Booker back in 2015, didn't he? So that's about five years ago. I think that win brokered a new... I mean, I think there's been a renaissance and a second wave of Caribbean fiction and poetry for probably about a decade now, at least a decade, or at least two decades, there have been people writing, new generation writing, new generations coming along for a couple of decades, probably, mostly women. I think Marlon James's win um, probably was a major game changer around um, <clears throat> writing coming out of the region. It's also a book about um, Bob Marley. So he's got a huge amount of uh, pop, pop culture in there. That's very mainstream. So, and then there've been other wins, you know, Varney Capaldeo won the Forward Prize and so did Kai Miller. And then we've had Shivani Ramlachan, a Trinidadian poet. She ended up on the shortlist of the Forward Prize. And then me, you know, now me, <laughs> you know, here I am. I think we've been seeing a lot of, you know, Malika Booker, who's also at Man Met, just also won Best Poem, I think, for the Forward Prize. We're seeing people writing from the region more and more 
being recognized on a kind of, you know, what I say, establishment platform. Whereas in the past, People Tree books or books that came out of the Caribbean, well, nobody understood them because they're written in dialect often. They're full of complicated politics. It's possible that why would white European people want to read these stories that come in the aftermath of a colonial past and maybe make them feel guilty? How are people going to understand our literature? That might all be in the mix. But I think that's really changed now. I, I wanted to, to kind of, as a final section, talk a little bit about your role kind of teaching young writers and also obviously specifically here at Manchester Met. Um, and I know that in an interview to, uh, after your award win, you kind of said something like, you know, your, your overall advice to writers would, from this would be to write the book that's going to burn its way out of you. Yeah, I, I would always say this, which is to avoid market politics. To avoid, I mean, if you like crime fiction and you're a crime fiction nut and, you know, aficionado and you really, really want to write noir fiction, do it. If you are a speculative fiction or you are reading everything in a certain genre and it's your thing, well, do that, you know. But I would avoid looking at a market and thinking which one is going to make me lots of money and then trying trying to do that. I would say, you know, write the book that only you can write. Write your book, the book by you. I mean, there's this idea that there are only seven basic plots, but there are millions of filters, um, which is the filter of your voice, your understanding of the world, your sensibility, your vocabulary. All of that's unique. And tell us your story the one that only you can tell and never, never, never think about does anybody need to hear it or want it? I mean, it's always going to be a shot in the dark. We all work alone on what we want to write and all the best we can do is hope that this is what will sell eventually. But I think to try and do it the other way round and to go, oh, what will sell? Maybe I'll try that. I hate to say it, but I really don't think that's the best way forward at all, ever. Obviously, you know, you, you have a, a, a lot to, of advice for, for young writers. And I, and I wondered, like, what about what is it about teaching creative writing or just talking to, to young and emerging writers about the industry, if you like, that that attracts you? Like what, what first brought you to teaching as well as being a writer yourself? Um, well, that's a really good question. Some people I mean, I, I, I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but it's. For me, it, I never knew that I'm, I have, I'm good at it. I like doing it and we're good at what we like. So I, I'm the last, again, it's surprising me as a teacher, but I happen to be a good teacher. I think because I just un, intrinsically also, ha, I understand craft and I had good teachers when I was a student of creative writing. I just have a feel for teaching, but the thing that I feel strongest about is there used to be a tradition and there still are people who say you can't teach creative writing. And I strongly disagree with that. I think what they mean or what they used to mean in a very strongly pre-feminist world was you can't teach talent or you can't teach the gift. Now, actually that's true. You can't teach talent or the gift. 
but you can teach craft and exposing somebody who is gifted and is talented and has a measure of patience and is great with language and has an imagination and a story to tell, you put that and expose that anyone with those that kind of potential with someone like me, a good teacher, or in a good teaching program, and it makes it makes all the difference. It means, yeah, you're going to have a really good chance now of getting published. Yeah. I mean, I'm I did an MA. I did an MA at Lancaster University and a PhD. So I'm a product of all of this, um, you know, academic support. So I've I've done it myself. I've come through that system. And I don't think I would have become a writer without all that support early on, which is like mentoring, hands-on mentoring from a, a cohort of, of fellow students, but also, you know, from poets and writers who are published and who've, who are going to give, you know, it's, it's the best thing. Anybody who wants to write coming on an MA pro- programme is the best thing they can do. And, and specifically, I suppose, at Manchester Met, can you um, kind of remember what, what, brought you to the Manchester Writing School and why you wanted to teach there and also I suppose your impressions since being here of you know the, the, the writers and poets that are well Manchester Met is a fabulous writing school with a stellar group of a stellar group of um writers poets non-fiction writers I mean I think if you were to tally up all the awards won by our staff I don't know 20 30 prizes big prizes, you know, writers like um, Alex Wheatle and Andrew McMillan and Jean Sprackland and Catherine Wilcox, Joe Stretch, Nicholas Royal, Anjum Malik. I could just go on and on. They're just a, a Greg Normington, fabulous po- um, writer, fabulous novelist, eco writer, the courses, the electives, just the whole thing. It's just a, I, I hope, and I'm actually pretty sure because I get the feedback from the students, that they are really inspired by all the all the writers that we have on staff. And I suppose just really, really finally, it, it, it's probably a bit unfair because we're, we're talking a few days after your award win. You probably haven't given it much thought, but I wondered if you had a plan for what you might want to do next, I suppose both in your own writing, but also at Manchester Met. Like, have you, you know, in your teaching, how can winning an award like this inform the kind of stuff you might want to do? Um, I haven't thought that far yet. Um, I I have a few vague ideas about what I might write next, but in terms of my teaching, gosh, I'm the same person, really. I'm, I, I, I was always such a... Like, anybody who gets me knows they've got, you know, quite a, quite a strong teacher. <laughs> so I'm the same person. I'm not... I don't think the prize has changed... I mean, it's fantastic if it meant more students wanted to come to MMU. Of course, that that's an enormous honour. And I would love, love it if that were true. But ultimately, it hasn't really changed um, the teacher I am. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of Manchester Metropolitan University's Metcast. Your feedback is always welcome, as are much-needed reviews and ratings on iTunes. So if you have a moment please head there to let us know what you think. That's all for this episode, though. See you next time.